So Songs for the Summer is our series. Well, you remember it, uh, if you were around last summer, uh, we did uh, Singing the Blues. They were the sad songs, songs of lament. Uh, and it's important, isn't it, to remind ourselves that we don't always sing happy songs. Uh, there is a right and there is an appropriate place for songs of lament. Uh, but we did that last year. We're going to do the songs of joy, songs of rejoicing. Not all of them, because the Psalms is packed with them. We're just going to take a few over the next few weeks. They're going to, going to be standalone, and there's going to be an opportunity for us to just, hopefully over the summertime, be refreshed. Just be encouraged uh, as we remind ourselves what the Bible tells us uh, through these songs. I think the first thing to remind ourselves is, singing is an incredibly powerful thing. I was watching, uh, I don't, are you, do you have certain kind of programs that you you can't help but watch. I have a real thing about watching all of these um, health programs and all of the kind of the latest things that, you know, is it a good thing to drink beetroot juice or whatever it might be? Actually, it is a good thing, by the way. Beetroot juice is good for you, according to the current study. Um, but there was a song, there was a program that was looking at singing, and they did a test on a choir. And... Um, by the end of the test, what they recognized was that singing reduces your blood pressure. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. I, I'm kind of, you know when you, you instinctively are not, you know that there's something in it, and then you look at this kind of scientific test and you find that singing reduces your blood pressure. God's people have always been singing people. God has designed for us to engage in that activity, to sing songs, uh, to encourage each other with songs, to worship God in song. Uh, and singing is a very, very powerful thing. It takes us to a different place than just talking or conversation or reading. It engages emotions, it engage, engages thoughts, it, it reminds us of things, it, it writes into our brain. Some people, in fact most people, I'm not one of these people, but most people find that they can remember things better when they attach a song to it. I, I, I would love to be able to do that, I can't do it. Uh, there's hymns that we've sung a thousand times, and I probably can't remind, remember the, the words of a verse, but that's just me. Don't take anything in that from me. It will be great too, but, but singing is one of those things. It, we drill into our minds, we repeat into our hearts and into our thoughts ideas and constructions and concepts and truths which become in, incredibly important for us. It's what singing does. And here's, the, here's a question I want to ask at the beginning of this Psalm 8. Is the singing of God's people simply a temporary pickup? Is it something that just kind of grabs us for a period of time and lifts us up for a moment and then we move on and we, we drop back down into normal experience? Is it a temporary happy feeling? Well, it certainly is a moment of joy. 
But if we think that the worship of God is simply a moment of temporary happiness, we are missing the grandeur and the majesty of what the worship of God in song is all about. It can be that. It can be temporary when we sing about temporary things. And it can become eternal when we sing about eternal things. So actually our fostering and nurturing and building our our sense of God is founded on what we sing. So let's have a look at this song. Psalm 8, verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. They're great words, aren't they? Kind of takes us to a different place. It reorientates our thoughts. We look out. I, many of us, I guess, will be or have been going to certain places, beautiful places around the country or the world, and we might be captured by the breathtaking nature surrounding us. There are moments when we look around us and we are amazed. We were away a few weeks ago and we, we saw a waterfall uh, and I, it, was, it was incredible. I'd, I don't know how much water was going through that waterfall per second, but it was just breathtaking, a few hundred feet and this incredible surge of water. There's moments where that kind of natural beauty takes us to a different place. And I guess the psalmist David is reflecting on that and he's saying, and Paul repeats the idea in Romans where he says, there is something about the, the majesty and the glory of God which is set in the created order. A moment where you are not struggling with light pollution. And you look up into the sky and it is pitch black around you. There's no, there's no man-made light. And you look up into the sky at night and you're able to see things which you don't normally see. Or you, you grab a telescope or a pair of binoculars and you look up into this massive expanse And you realize that the more you look, the more you see. And even in that naked eye, we realize that there is more than we could possibly hope to number. And then we understand that we go to the kind of first level of telescope, and then the second and the third level, and then some kind of electronic, and then some radio telescopes, and all of the kind of clever stuff that's going on. And the deeper and the deeper and the deeper that we go into this incredible cosmos, and we're surrounded by magnificence, the psalmist says there is something about that which sees the glory of God No human being could ever form anything like that. It is breathtaking. I look around and I see it, and it inspires me. It encourages me to look out and see, not the glory of this created stuff alone, but it springboards me 
to see the glory of God. That was one of the turns that Paul makes clear, the kind of the misstep that humanity makes is when it doesn't use this created order as a springboard to see the glory of God. It looks at this created order and starts to worship this created order. It's, it is close to being worth worshipping. That, that's one of the reasons that we turn to worshipping the created order is because it is so breathtaking. We look back in the ancient world and we see that that was what Paul points to in Romans and he says your misstep is you started to worship this created stuff. And we might say, well, that, that, that's a bit stupid, isn't it, to worship creation? And the reality is that all around us, what is re-emerging with different language is a whole spirituality which is once again worshipping the created order. We talk about the spirit world. We talk about our unity with all of nature. We talk about all of this beauty. Why do we do that? It's not stupid. Because, because the created order is that amazing. But it's only a springboard, the psalmist is saying. It's a way for me to see something which is even greater don't worship the created, worship the creator is what he's encouraging us to do. We couldn't get close to producing what we see around us. And it's a reason for us to look out and be amazed. Is, is that it? Look at what it does. First thing I want to see is that there is a reason for singing. Verse 2 it says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. That seems a strange thing to say, doesn't it? How, do, how does he get from singing about the praise of creation to suddenly reflecting on the idea of children and infants establishing a stronghold against the enemies? David lived in a world where he was continually threatened. The nations around, in his earlier life, Saul was a threat to him. The nations around were a constant threat to him. His spiritual well-being was tied up with the military or physical well-being of his existence. I think what he's doing here is he's saying, I realize now that when I was growing up as a child, as an infant, part of it, of what he's saying is, there was a stronghold that was being constructed that allows me now to see the beauty and the glory of this creation that points me to the God that I worship. That's the, that's the stronghold that was created. And now... That stronghold that has been built and constructed protects me now, today, against my enemies. He was, he was seriously threatened. But he looks back and he realizes that 
I have been shaped in a way that allows me to see this God who I worship. And that is more precious than anything. What do we do with something like that? Parents, carers, actually all of us. What do we want for our children? In the world that we live in, that, is a, that was a, a vital question for today. What do we desperately want for our children? In the way that we can easily be distracted into, into seeing ourselves in the wrong way, we can equally be distracted into wanting the wrong things for our children or prioritizing things which are of lesser importance. Good things, but not ultimate things. If we take what David is saying here, praise of children and infants, and the, Jesus reflects on the simplicity of children later on, and he says that that is a beautiful thing. And even in their infancy, children worship him. But is there a sense in which we see our children and we want to say, I want to build in you a stronghold for the future. I want to knit into you and I want to help you, nurture you, grow you, encourage you, point you in the direction of seeing the God who will in later life be a security for you in the world that we live in. That is more important than anything. And that, that, that's, a, that's a really kind of, culturally today, that is a real knife edge, isn't it? I want to, just, I want to kind of go there and, and name that as a knife edge. There is a knife edge where we fall, in one sense, into a really kind of unhelpful brainwashing and pressurizing. And that is never good. But what our children need to see is that the stronghold that I have in my life is so precious to me that they want it as well. That we build up and we knit into them and we grow in their minds and in their thoughts that they get to a point in life where they realize that the singing of songs like this is a security against the oppressor. The one who will spiritually attack them and cause them to see things that are unhelpful. And we've built into them, we've encouraged into them, we've nurtured into them something which is strong. As a church, we have that responsibility for the children of our community. Our gathering here. Kids' work is, is wow, it's hard work especially when the room is like 101 degrees. But do you know how precious it is? Do you see what we're doing here? What we're about? We're building something which creates a stronghold for the future. Where David reflects back and he says, I realize now that the praise of infants has grown into the praise of an adult." Reason for singing, security from our oppressors. The second thing that we see is we have a complete reorientation 
of our identity and our existence. That's what this song is about. Look at how it continues in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. The reorientation that takes place is there, a, there is a dignity in the fact that we are valued by God. Look at, the, look at what he's comparing us with, a, a, an infant or, or humanity. I mean, one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is the ongoing quest for life out there. I don't know whether they will ever find life. I, I'm not one of those people who say, biblically speaking, it's absolutely impossible that they'll ever find life. I, I don't know. I don't know. I know that in the past week, there's the idea that they've now found water on Mars. But as far as we've looked up to this point, in this vast, vast universe, there's us human beings. In the, in the scope of the universe, all of us gathered together are a tiny, tiny little dot. When we are in, all together, we are nothing. We, we could take all of the atomic bombs that humanity possesses, explode them in one go, and the cosmos would hardly sniff. <laughs> we are nothing. We are tiny. We are insignificant. And yet God, the creator of all of that, has turned to us with His sight and with His love and with His affection. And He says, you are very good. That's who we are. Why, God? Why have you turned your affection? Why do you even think about humanity in the light of this huge cosmos that we live in? In all of this, we're important. Isn't that breathtaking? Isn't that amazing? That the God who created this that we can't even compute knows about this gathering this afternoon. Knows about the concerns of your heart this afternoon. Knows about what is worrying you or what is exciting you or what is distracting you or what is encouraging you. He knows at that level, at that level of detail, that's where his desire and his concern and his heart is towards humanity, towards us. David, I guess, is reflecting back to that glorious, majestic creation moment where God creates all of this cosmos and then he says, but now let us make man in our image. Let us make humanity in our image. And so, in the image of God, we are created. 
I find that an amazing thought. I find that, that's, that's almost too big <laughs> to come to terms with, isn't it? That in all of this, little you and little me are the focus of God's attention. Whilst at the same time, holding together all of creation. Creating black holes and sucking stars into black holes and whatever else is going on out there. He knows what's happening for you tomorrow. And he knows when you get up tomorrow what your joys and fears might be. That's the kind of comparison that, that we might say today. David says, I look at the moon and the stars, and I think, how are you thinking about us? We know way more about moons and stars now. We actually know that there's not a great big kind of sea of water above the sky, which is what David would have thought. We're not there now, but, but we know that there's crazy stuff out there. We've got exploding stars and all the rest of it. We've got stuff going on. And we can still say, but God has his heart on you and me tomorrow and today and in this moment. There is a dignity in us because God values us. I am who you say I am. That's who you say I am. The one who you have decided to be mindful of. So there's, there's value in our, there's dignity in our being valued by God. But there's also dignity in our purposeful existence. Verse 5. You've made them a little lower than the angels, this is humanity, and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. When you create it, David is saying, he's reflecting back to that moment, he's saying, you created and then you created humanity, and you didn't place humanity on the level of everything else that is created. You raised humanity, and you placed humanity as custodians of what you've created. Well, have we done a good job with that? I, I think... I think, to be honest, I remember when I was, in, when I was a young teenager, I, I didn't worry at all about the, 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 the problems that we were creating in the world. I suppose as I've got older and older and I see more of what's going on, and I reflect on this verse and what we are called to be, I realize that we, have not done, we are not doing a good job. We are a fallen race. We are fallen humanity who are messing up the job that we are called to do. But we are still called to do it. But you see what, what David is reflecting on? He's saying, you gave us a job to do in this created order. 
You didn't place us alongside. You made us responsible for. We've got work to do. We've got stuff to do. Human ex existence is not an empty existence. There are things that we are to do. I love that. I love that the more that I think about that and how, how it reflects what we do each day in our work. In, are, are, we, are we living with that redemptive idea in everything that we do? Are we living in a world where we're seeing that we are called to be active people doing stuff as custodians of the created order and at the same time living with the complexities of the fact that we're called to care for stuff when we're messing it up at the same time. But David is reflecting, he's saying here, there is a dignity because we're valued by you, but there is a dignity because we've been given a task by you. And he's not just saying it, he's singing it. He's singing about this. He's glorying in it. Singing, singing is always, some, in some sense, it's a reflection of value, isn't it? It's a reflection of how we value something. We sing at sporting occasions, for example. Go to, a, go to a, you know, an amazing football match and part of a huge crowd and the singing is, it takes you, it's, there's a value that's going on, you're part of something. And you're carried along with a value of what you're observing. And David is saying, I'm singing because I value the God who is behind all of this. I'm singing because I value my identity in the God who is behind all of this. I am singing because I value the work that I've been done, I've been given to do by this God who is behind all of this. It's breathtaking perspective of human identity, which is so remarkably different from the flimsy, temporary ideas of human existence. David was singing about this at a time when the nations around him, as far as we understand, were a continuation of the ideas of creation that were resident in the Canaanite people when Moses led the people out of Egypt. At that time, the idea of the world that we lived in, the, the, the wider nation's idea of the world that they lived in, was basically that the world came into being when two of the gods had a battle. And as those gods were battling, trying to show their superiority over one and the other, effectively, the, the world was created on a whim and just cast off into existence just to show the power of one god against the other. How empty... How sad. 
for, for those surrounding David at that time. What, what an empty existence. Our existence, if we were Philistines at that time, as far as we understand, was that they only saw their identity as a kind of an accident of the gods. And David is singing that we are way, way better than that. God made us with a purpose. He's got his eyes fixed on us, and he's given us a job to do. How sad for those around David who didn't share in that sense of glorious identity. And you say, well, that's crazy, isn't it, to think about gods in battle, and the world is just an accident. But the same root experience for the nations around David is exactly the root experience of the world that we live in today. We have an idea that we are just an accident. We have an idea that we just happened. It just, we're nothing better than a cosmic accident. Do you see how David's praise from centuries ago is so relevant to today? We're not an accident. I don't want to be an accident. I want to be of worth. I want to have meaning. That's what this song is about. It's about saying you have worth, you have meaning. You are not an accident. An accident that's just going to return us to nothingness or created in the image of God with an eternal destiny. It's breathtaking, isn't it? The idea that God uses this song to speak about the glory of humanity. That's what it's all about, the glory of humanity. If it stopped there, it would be amazing. But I want to take you now to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Look at what it says. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Does that sound familiar from two minutes ago? The very words that God uses to declare the glory of humanity, he now speaks about himself. Because the humanity that he glorifies... He doesn't just observe, but he takes on. This is speaking about Jesus. It's speaking about Jesus who, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Everything that we see as being our task that we're messing up is given to Jesus. We don't see it yet. 
Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus. Who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now crowned with glory and honor. Because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, one of the problems with this placing ourselves in this beautiful cosmos is that we also know that by seeing our glorious position in it, we are also subject to the scourge of death, which is its existence. And these very verses are used to describe Jesus who takes on that humanity, who enters into our existence, who says effectively, yes, this humanity is glorious. It's, it's the very center of our creation. In fact, it's so glorious, I won't observe it, I will enter into it. I will take it on. And I'll take on the very scourge of death which it faces. And I will die so that they might live. So that the very glory that we're talking about is not a temporary thing. Because Jesus entered into this created order, because Jesus took on this humanity and died and lived, we are able to say that in Him, this glorious created order has an eternal future. There's all sorts of things going on. If you look online, there's all sorts of st stuff going on about the, the decline of the world. All of the stuff that we're doing to this world and the fact that we're ravaging it. And the, you know, I, I was reading this fascinating report about how close we are to non-existence if we manage to wipe out bees. Wipe out bees and pollination ends and we die within, I don't know how many, just a really short space of time, all humanity goes. Bees are absolutely essential for our existence. We are living on a knife edge according to the research. And yet Jesus tells me that we are not living on a knife edge. <laughs> There is an eternal future, which is in the created order, but restored in Him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that worth singing about? To say that in Him, we have hope. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens.